Welcome to the LTC University Podcast, empowering and educating across the great state of South Carolina. Here we go. Welcome to the LTC University Podcast. My name is Jamie Preston, and we're here with my new friend, Dr. Amber Green. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah. So uh, you have been in healthcare for quite a while now. You have served in several different capacities um, across the country. And I want you to just begin by telling us about your kind of what you've done in the past. You're now working for SC House Calls as, as a nurse practitioner. And but give us an overview of what you've done in, in healthcare. Okay, sure. Thanks, Jamie. I have actually been a family nurse practitioner for the past 21 years. I'm licensed in a few different states, and I have been in a variety of different roles. I do have a family background, but my passion is really with internal medicine, and here lately, even more so around holistic and integrative health medicine, looking at the the whole clinical picture and how things uh, really can interact and can cause um, a lot of clinical decline in individuals. Mm. I think in medicine, sometimes I've seen where we get so tunnel visioned and or the provider community may not talk amongst one another and we miss a lot of different things. And what I've been doing really the last probably 12 years besides practicing medicine on the side is focusing on consulting, yeah, educating a lot of health systems and doctors and nurse practitioners and PAs on looking at the larger clinical picture, looking at data from all kinds of different sources, whether it be pharmacy or a lab or hospital systems, and helping them understand exactly what's going on with the individuals that they're caring for so that they can, in fact, have a better quality of care that they're providing and better treatment plans to really help keep keep people healthier longer and out of the hospital unnecessarily. Sure. I've practiced in emergency rooms, hospitals, um, uh, you know, clinics. <clears throat> I do have a lot of passion around hospice and palliative care since a lot of the individuals I've worked with over the years are people with terminal conditions or sure. chronic conditions that are progressive. Yeah. And so you've seen some stuff to say the least. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, uh, you know, hearing you too, you know, everybody gets into healthcare for, um, for generally the same reason they want to help people. They want to make people feel better. They want to heal people. You know, there's different ways to come about it. There's different things that they do, different jobs that they take. Um, You've been on uh, several sides of that and you've been on administrative sides where you're, you know, in that, that more consulting work going in, teaching, training and and helping people understand, but you want to make people feel better. Do you feel sometimes, you know, once people get into the system, the healthcare system, they kind of get lost and kind of, is it easy to lose your way? Absolutely. I have, um, and are you asking from a provider or a patient? From a provider. From a a provider standpoint. Yeah. I think as from a provider point of view, I think we sometimes start getting so busy or distracted by 
the bureaucracy, yeah. <laughs> you have the, the ever-changing rules, you know, that come down the line mm-hmm. and or requirements from different, you know, government systems or, or health plans or payers that we forget to step back and take care of the patient sometimes. Yeah. Um, and not realizing that even though what they're asking us to do is important, and it's sure. supposed to improve quality of care being provided, but it becomes um, so tedious that we just look at checking the box so that we can just complete our day and move on. And, yeah. and we really need to do better. We need to have a modernization in our healthcare to improve, yeah. you know, the outcomes. Right. Absolutely. And that's that's where I was actually going. That last word that you just said, outcomes, because we've been in this, you know, for, you know, several years now, we've been in this, you know, fee for service model, you know, where, you know, you pay so much, you get this health care and it's changing, um, especially for South Carolina house calls. This has been changing for a while now um, to, you know, really this, uh, a, to a different model where you're really focused on outcomes. And I think that is just such a great course correction for healthcare because that's what it's all about is the outcome for the patient to make the patient better. So talk about some of the work you've been doing, you know, when it comes to outcomes, cause, and we're going to get into the, you know, the RAF scores and, you know, and, and get into that detail of that. But talk about the work you've been able to do you know, when it comes to outcomes. So I, um, and, and a lot of my, my training and, um, you know, consulting over the past several years, helping people one for one, get passionate or repassionate or re-engaged, whatever mm. the proper word is sure. and why they started practicing medicine to begin with, because I think sometimes that gets lost in the bureaucracy, right. And helping them understand the, that they have the ability to, to not only um, improve outcomes, but save lives. I mean, so by using data, I think that data is so important in the healthcare world. And because in the United States, we have a lot of mom and pop electronic medical record systems that have popped up and we have a lot of antiquated, you know, reporting systems and other types of, you know, hospital systems and pharmacy systems where they don't communicate. And so therefore, when you've got patients that let's say that live in New York and they're snowbirds and they go down to Florida, Mm -hmm. well, all the care that they got in that one state is not being communicated back up to the primary care provider. And they have no idea what happened. And patients are often poor historians. And there's a lot of guesswork. I feel like we are like, you know, detectives trying to understand and, and, and assume and make guesses. Sure. And and unfortunately, what happens is that we start reordering tests that have already been completed. So now there's a delay in care. Mm-hmm. We start duplicating efforts. We're spending a lot of money. Um, the patient now is suffering having to go to get these additional tests. And now their healthcare needs are not being met because a month has passed by when another individual has already ordered this and they just can't, you know, get back in touch with this individual because they've moved. A lot of other work that I've done is trying to help them do better work at, you know, prepping their, um, their charts. So like in a clinic, for instance, can they work with their nurses or admin staff in, getting consult notes and getting the labs and getting the x-rays or whatever it may be, getting pharmacy reports, get it inputted into the chart so that they can review that prior to walking in to examine that person so they can quickly see, 
oh, well, you know, Mrs. You know, Mickey Mouse did not get, or not Mickey or Mouse or whomever, you know, did not get a prescription. <laughs> you said Florida, um, so. <laughs> I did, oh, you know, I did. And I said Miss, Miss Minnie Mouse, right? So, I, you know, she did not get a refill on her medication. I need to understand why. Is it because she can't afford it? Or is it because she doesn't understand how to take it? Or because she has side effects? You know, I see that there's blood work here, but it doesn't look like anyone has addressed you know, chronic kidney disease, I need to take note of that and educate her about her salt intake. I mean, so there's so many different things that we need to do, but what happens is the doctor or nurse practitioner PA may only have five minutes with this person. Yeah. They have 15 chronic conditions. They have mm -hmm. limited time. So they're only addressing two or three conditions that might be, you know, affecting them. But when we step back, these other eight remaining eight or nine diagnoses that they have cause a negative impact in their sure. health in their daily well-being and so they're not you know doing their own research so that they can make the most of that five minutes yeah. i really hate the five minute i mean even as a patient myself i expect you know to get the the red carpet like you know i i'm paying for this please address yeah. my whole person <laughs> I, at one point uh, i remember going to an urgent care one time um, I was really sick. I wasn't feeling good. This is a couple years ago. I went to urgent care and my visit was literally, and I'm not exaggerating. I've said this on this podcast before, but it was literally 30 seconds with the doctor. That's oh how my long gosh. my visit was. You know, it was just, it well, was ridiculous. Well, when I hear things from patients, well, I went to my cardiologist, you know, for my heart problem, but he didn't listen to my heart with the stethoscope. Or I went to my urologist and she or he did not examine my prostate, you know, right. or I went to a gastrologist and didn't press on my stomach. I'm like, my, my head turns on a swivel and I'm like, we've got to do better. Yeah. We have got to hold each other accountable to why we went to start practicing medicine to begin yeah. with, because these patients' lives are at stake. And at South Carolina House Calls, it is so enlightening when I walk into someone's environment to see what they are mm. dealing with and suffering and hearing their point of view, their perspective of the care that they received at a hospital or a specialist or their own primary care provider and how much gap is exists. And they are just trying to do the best they can do to feel better. And, and we are failing, you know, I think personally, and this is my opinion. So, I mean, people can shoot darts at me. I feel like we are failing, you know, nationwide mm -hmm. as a healthcare system by not, you know, really being, um, spending more time with our patients yeah. and trying to help them understand their disease processes, how to take their medications, how to improve their diet. And we're just hoping somebody else educates them. And that's why I love South Carolina house calls, because if we need to spend an hour, an hour and a half or two hours with these individuals, helping them improve their overall outcomes, we can. And the people are so satisfied. Mm -hmm. They're like, wow, I, I wish that someone would have taught me this 10 years ago. I didn't even know I yeah. had chronic kidney disease. No one told me. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It's that it's, it is, um, what I think is really important is, as you've, you've alluded to is it is about those outcomes. It's about how that patient feels and you're not being critical just to be critical. You're being critical to make change, to, to do this for, the patient and to really help the patient. And I think that's what's important. And, um, I don't know how long ago it was, but CMS, you know, came out with a new scoring system, 
um, called the the RAF score, and which is you know stands for risk adjustment factor. And that's what I want us to get into today on why that's important. How do you make sure that that is correct? Because I think that's what's really important. So give give everybody an overview for the people that may not know what a RAF score is. Give them an overview what what it is. Yeah, and I, I like to kind of um, simplify the explanation because it, it is a little bit complex. And this subject is so near and dear to my heart. And when I think about risk adjustment program or RAF score, it's really that concept called gaps in care. So before I go talk about risk scores, I want to just kind of, I, I call it break it down Barney style for Absolutely. those people that are. <laughs> That's what I need. Barney and we care. have to sing the song afterwards too. So. <laughs> I will feel so much better because that's exactly what I need because I do not come from a medical background. I, right. I'm in more marketing. So that really, really helps me. And, and let me say this, you know, as I'm coming at healthcare from a marketing perspective, when you're looking at these outcomes and it's really focused on the outcomes, it makes it so much easier and ethical to market to really be able to stand behind what you're marketing and what you're telling people about, it makes it so much easier. So I, I just love this conversation. So absolutely. So Bar- and, you know, Barney I, it down. I, I love it. Right. Because I, I, I did become a certified coder. I think that lasted five years. That was the hardest test I took way harder than my, my boards, um, to practice medicine. And, um, and it's so technical that I'm just like, what? So uh, it's definitely not my passion. Um, I like to Barney, you know, break it down Barney style. So, so really, so back to the risk adjustment program. So that, yeah, you know, like Jay, like you said, it, it was created by CMS um, and became a reality. Well, really started becoming a reality in 2004 as they slowly integrated. It became a, a full reality for us in 2007. And to me, anytime there is a significant change, I think that we need to understand the why this took place mm-hmm. to embrace, you know, yes. these new concepts so that we as providers can actually change our behaviors and adapt to this change. And so let me, you know, just say, I, I understand why the risk adjustment program was created. So to give you some background, the purpose of risk adjustment started when the Balanced Budget Act in 1987 held CMS accountable to developing a better reimbursement program. And it really was because of accountability purposes. I mean, there was so much money, so much duplication of testing, like I mentioned previously, and there was just inaccurate reimbursements. You know, I kind of like to think of it like the money was going to run out for for Medicare for like let's say you and I, sure. and so they had to come up with a better system of what was being reimbursed because this was out of control, and to really think about it, like if you have a patient in New York City where we know the cost of living is sky high, mm-hmm. and let's say that this person has three clinical conditions, they're stable, you know there was you know the health plans that were taking care of the this person we're receiving a certain amount of reimbursement in the old system prior to risk adjustment. And let's say you have an individual in rural Virginia that has the same three clinical conditions, but they're not stable in nature. They're having to access care more often. They have hospitalizations um, and they were getting like four times less reimbursement because they lived in rural Virginia, Mm. but yet it was taking so much effort to care for this person to get them stable. And so you know, from a provider point of view, when it comes to risk adjustment, there's it, it makes sense that now we are reimbursing 
based on how sick a person is because of the amount of effort and time needing to be spent with an individual to care for their chronic conditions, to stabilize it so that the right funding or the right money is going to the right healthcare programs in order to stabilize it. And and I'm going to get a little bit more into that, but you know, I will say from a provider point of view, it's easy for us to kind of think, oh, this mandated risk adjustment program, it's all about getting paid more money. It's helping the, mm. you know, insurances be more profitable, but that is the furthest from the truth. Yeah. You know, I'm so surprised that there's so many clinicians out there still unaware of how critically important the risk adjustment program is and how it has such an impact of, on the quality of care being provided to their patients. Yeah. You know, it, it makes sense. It's a predictive financial reimbursement program where certain clinical conditions get assigned, like you said, a score. And it's kind of like a game of math. We thought we would never use that math, but hey, we are yeah. um, you know, back in the day. Um, so really, if a, someone has a certain chronic condition, we know that that's not going to magically disappear. In fact, we know it might actually progress and get worse. There's a lot of evidence-based medicine out there where we know certain conditions decline, the person becomes sicker, the more care that is needed, the cost of care goes up. Mm -hmm. So the risk adjustment program paying based on just how sick a patient population is, or we call it patient acuity levels, that makes sense. The people that are healthier don't need as much funding set aside for next year's healthcare cost needs, but the people that are sicker need more money. So this high, I kind of like to think of it hierarchy of needs based on patient acuity. The problem is CMS did not take into consideration that providers historically were not trained on proper diagnosis coding with the former ICD-9 model and now the ICD-10 model. Right. And when this was rolled out, providers are like, I don't know how to code to the highest level of specificity. I'm going to let my coder do that. Yeah. And But what they don't understand, a coder cannot code what is not documented. You know, they always say if it's not documented, it's not done. And so therefore it required a paradigm shift in justifying why they came to the conclusion this person has this diagnosis, how complex this person is, what are they doing about it? If, if anything, to stabilize this. And old habits are really hard to break. So I really think there's a steep learning curve yeah. that is still happening across the nation around risk adjustment. I think too, you know, I think, you know, providers look at a patient and they say, well, man, I don't want to cost this person more money because they are very <laughs> compassionate too. But yes. you're actually costing them money by not getting all that information in there and diagnosed and, and getting the you know, the, the real information, the right information in there. And it's, it's and at the end of the day, it ends up costing them money. And, and, and ultimately it goes back to that outcome. It has a negative outcome on that patient. Like yes. let's use depression, for example. Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to label this person with major depression because I don't want him to have a preexisting condition, not knowing that, you have you have mislabeled or misdiagnosed them for many years and now they're not able to go get proper assistance yeah. you know to help them improve because you know certain monies were not reimbursed for this you know what what they're putting as a symptom that has now become major depression i i agree it you know there are some really common chronic conditions that are 
very important that are not addressed on a regular basis. And, you know, it's like they basically disappear as if a miracle has occurred. The amputated leg has magically grown back. You know, the cataract, you know, that <laughs> never had surgery magically yeah. now. They can see, you know, it's a miracle. Um, you know, they're cured. The problem is these chronic conditions, and I that's why I like to call them gaps in care, because if we're not addressing these chronic conditions that you know, so that fell off the radar, even though they still exist. Now we have a gap in care. Yeah, They've dropped off and now these health plans are not properly reimbursed to pay for these clinical conditions. It, in my classic example, I like to use congestive heart failure. Mm. You know, it's stable in nature. It can go all year long, not having an exacerbation. And then grandma eats too much salt mm -hmm. um, at Christmas, ends up with a hospitalization at the very end of the year. And let's say that hospitalization costs $50,000. And but by the time they put the official diagnosis of congestive heart failure, it was January 1. Yeah. It was already the new year. So now it's never got coded. Who's going to pay for this hospitalization? Yeah. The health plan gets nothing mm -hmm. from Medicare. So now they have to take funding from healthier patients in order just to cover those costs. And then this is where we start talking about these negative outcomes. The Medicare Advantage programs who are supposed to offer benefits above and beyond traditional Medicare, now they're losing money left and right because the doctors, the NPs, the PAs are not coding accurately or timely. And then they start cutting down benefits. They start charging more copays, more deductibles. And now it's no longer affordable for individuals that are on limited incomes, you know, and when they're just trying to have a peace of mind, having extra insurance coverage, and they have to choose, do I eat today? Do I get my medication or do I pay my extra insurance? Yeah. Wow. That just makes so much sense. This is, this is the best explanation I've ever had of the oh. risk adjustment <laughs> factor and, and what it, what it really does. Um, no, that's yeah. And you know what? I lived that. I lived that with my mom, um, uh, yeah. last year, congestive heart failure. We were on a, we went to a family reunion she, you know, she's, she's had some chronic, she's had liver disease where she's had a liver transplant. She's been through all kinds of different things with her kidneys. Um, and so we went to this family reunion. She ate kind of whatever she wanted, you know, definitely high salt. It was in Western Virginia, you know, since you of already course. talked about <laughs> Western Virginia, you know, yeah. for family, it was actually in West Virginia. That was, but, but we, you know, we went and we, you know, we enjoyed ourselves. We go home and she's having trouble breathing, you know, and, and we end up spending the rest of the week in the hospital with her, you know, for about six days, which, yeah. which probably could have been avoided, you know, right. uh, all, it was all avoidable, you know? And so yeah. it's just frustrating when you're on that end of it and you see what could have happened. And do you think it could have been avoidable had the healthcare providers spent a little bit more time yeah. explaining consequences to actions, consequences to decisions of mm -hmm. eating foods that have a higher salt, how it can have this negative domino effect sure. to the clinical conditions? Yeah. So, you know, it's just time is so important in spending mm -hmm. with people that have chronic conditions, helping them, empowering them to yeah. do better, to make better choices. You know, some research was done a few years back um, from a large, well-known company that I'm not going to mention right now, but they discovered, and they, it was thousands of, of people that they were able to evaluate, but they discovered that up to 15% of patients miss annual visits with their primary care physician. Mm. And, yeah. you know, 
and, and, if, and if they're having to pay more, if they're having to, you know, one, knowledge is power, right? So if they don't think that it's important, they're not going to go, or they're scared of certain testing, scared of finding out they might have a chronic condition. Sure. But sometimes it's about affordability, and if they're having to pay more, they don't go. And I know at South Carolina House Calls, that's what I'm like, when I start seeing that, oh, okay, I need to go do an annual wellness visit, I'm like, yes, I love this because we get to close, you know, that gap in care by going to their homes and doing a very thorough annual wellness exam. But yeah. this research also discovered that over 20% of previously reported chronic conditions or codes, ICD-10 codes, drop off a medical record, yeah. like this magical, you know, miracle that happened. And then over 30% of clinical conditions are actually undocumented in the medical records. And, you know, I had already spoke about that congestive heart failure, but there's so many other chronic conditions that are stable in nature that just may not be exacerbating or warranting any type of treatment other than just close monitoring. It, but that doesn't make them unimportant since any chronic illness ultimately can or does have an impact on someone's mental, economic, physical sure. well-being or whatever you want to call it. You know, I talked about the amputated leg, but COPD, depression, um, cancers that are actually history of not active cancers, you know, um, chronic kidney disease, you know, diabetes with complications. I could go on and on and on. Right. But I'm like, you know, when I discover, and then when I ask a person what their chronic conditions are, they probably recall two or three and I have a list in front of me of like 20. So that tells me they don't even understand what is going on with their bodies. Yeah. And, and you know, Jamie, I'm sorry. I mean, I was no, going to, no, you know, no, it makes right. me think, but these gaps, these gaps in care, I think really reflect missed member treatment or miss member or miss patient opportunities, right? Mm. Um, treatment, treatment um, plans of care. And ultimately, because we're not addressing them, back to the whole risk adjustment thing, we're not addressing them. It has that negative impact on the funding that is needed to care for these patients for sure. different health programs that can be created to help improve their outcomes. So let's get in now that we really understand this, you know, let's, and, and taking my mom as an example, you know, they, she was able to get to an actual CHF clinic. They've been able to really educate her. She's on a type of remote patient monitoring where she's weighing every day. Um, she knows if she's gained two pounds overnight, that something's yep. not right, you mm -hmm. know? So, um, it, she hates the scale because the scale literally, I, I've been there when she's weighed, <laughs> it verbally announces her weight. So she absolutely hates the scale. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's such a good thing, um, that yeah. she's constantly knows what's going on. She knows what her blood pressure is. She knows every morning and that clinic literally, if, if she didn't weigh or she, something didn't happen, she gets a call and, and Medicare knows that, Hey, this is, we're paying this money for this clinic to monitor her, to have these devices in her home. But we know that if we can monitor this, we can keep her out of the hospital to have a better quality of life because it is no quality of life in the hospital. And she right. can have a better quality of life at home, enjoying her family, enjoying her life much better. And, and so it, she's being managed now. She's being educated. She's, she gets it. And sure, does it cost money? Absolutely, it costs money. But it is saving money in the long run right. for so many other people. So let's get into 
you know, what tips do you have for other providers? You know, South Carolina house calls providers, what tips do you have for them that they can really, you know, document this well to make sure that they're doing the right thing to get those better outcomes for their patients? Cause that's what they want at the end of the day. That's why they got into all of this. That's right. So I think, you know, starting off, we have a lot of medical records that are provided to us that we can review thoroughly before we even step foot into that person's house to really understand the course of the healthcare that has been provided to this person, kind of their clinical decline, what all, you know, medications and labs and consults that they're having. And then you quickly realize how piecemealed sometimes the care has been yeah. and disconnected where the right hand does not know what the left hand is doing, meaning the doctors are not communicating. <laughs> and you can see that this person is, no one is stepping back and realizing the disease interactions, the connected nature of how, when I talked about that negative domino effect, how, and what's happening is people are being thrown medications to treat side effects for other medications that they might be on that's now causing greater problems and not stepping back and realize do they really need this? What, mm -hmm. what's the root cause? And, you know, a classic, you know, example that I think that a lot of our providers within South Carolina house calls, where we have the opportunity to spend more time with people, understand their day-to-day -day struggles in their own environment, really spending time doing a deeper review of systems, a deeper physical exam and looking at their medications and side effects. You know, we can leverage the pharmacy services, the social worker, the dietitian, the psych and, and so in the palliative care and so on, where we have this holistic approach or this multidisciplinary team approach, which I think is just so ideal. I'm so excited yeah. to see what we offer here. But I think these providers, you know, by first starting off doing a, a thorough chart review, secondly, updating the diagnosis codes. I am seeing, you know, where they're coming from a hospital system and a lot of symptom codes are being documented from, you know, providers, but not not calling a spade a spade, you know, meaning people are saying weight gain, edema, shortness of breath, but yet they have congestive heart failure. Those are symptoms of congestive heart failure. Let's let's that's a lot more important diagnosis than edema or swelling in the large extremities, sure. you know, or um, it could be that they're having um, you know, severe fatigue. And so that's being documented. And fatigue is always such a, um, a generic um, symptom, right, that could be related to all other chronic conditions. But I ask, you know, you know, for my peer nurse practitioners, you know, to step back and say, okay, is it, you know, try to go through, is it anemia? Is it thyroid? Is it, you know, um, a severe vitamin D deficiency, which I'm finding on like, tons of people, you know, is it, um, you know, a, a medication side effects, you know, is, is it because they have chronic kidney disease or liver problems and they're not able to process the medications like they were? And could we do a drug holiday? Yeah. You know, um, yeah. you know, understanding that, you know, one of the ones that I see oftentimes people are, you know, putting, you know, for acid reflux, you know, I, I kind of like to think that, we need acid in our stomach to digest our foods. You know, when I was so excited, you know, years ago, oh my gosh, like what, 19, 20 years ago when these proton pump inhibitors like Protonix and Prevacid came out, you know, to help people that had stomach ulcers and, and issues with their stomach, but it's, they're not meant for long-term use. Right. They can 
cause chronic kidney disease and congestive heart failure and you know osteoporosis and so on and so forth. And so when these people are already suffering from this and they have no acid reflux, we need to start saying it's okay for us to do drug holidays. Let's pause some of these medications that are just, you know, not warranted. Let's see how they're doing and improving because their health might improve. And I, I know that was probably too much, uh, you know, answer for what we can do. There's a lot I think that we have an opportunity on, but updating the diagnoses, updating medications because they get home from the hospital and they're on sometimes three different doses of the same drug because <laughs> yeah. they're confused, you know, reconciling that because that has a negative impact and then being okay with calling a spade a spade. I mean, I, I'll go in and I'll see the person has severe vascular disease mm. and then I'll do a, a little test monofilament and they have severe neuropathy, but yet there is no diagnosis anywhere in the chart that calls that out. And that, you know, is part of the risk adjustment program. So as a provider, I am going to document that they have vascular disease and peripheral neuropathy related to their other chronic conditions, whether it's diabetes or hypertension, because that's what caused it yeah. and be okay with diagnosing things in the hospital. I mean, in the, I'm sorry, in the um, house without having to do additional testing because clinically you see it right there. Absolutely. Yeah. What, you know, what are some of, you know, when a provider is going in and diagnosing, um, you know, what would you say to that provider that's, that's on the other end of that. They're compassionate. They they want to save this, you know, person money because they're like, you know what, I don't, I, you know, they have to pay a copay, you know, because because you guys see South Carolina house calls, you guys see patients more often than some other providers out there, and that's really what Medicare wants. You know, what do you say to that provider? I will be fully transparent with you. In the beginning, I was one of those that had, uh, you know, oh my gosh, I don't want them to have they, limited income. I don't want them to have to pay extra money, yeah. you know, because yeah. I'm being extra thorough to make sure they're stable. But then I step back and realize these individuals oftentimes are very sick. They are very complex. And the care that we are providing it's like equaling to like four doctor's visits that they, they would have received from somebody else because, you know, in the five minute increments. Yeah. Um, and by our thorough nature in, you know, our assessments and conversations and education and walking through the house and, and looking at the risks that they have, um, they're not getting that anywhere else, first of all. Secondly, we are preventing complications. I mean, I was, you know, I was able to collaborate with my peers. We saved a few folks from legs being amputated because we were able to catch things early on and decided we need to go see them more frequently to be more aggressive. Yeah. We've prevented hospitalizations by safely and effectively treating people in the home with acute, you know, or severe, you know, COPD exacerbations and congestive heart failure exacerbations and so on and so forth. And at the end of the day, we need to understand that this is not business. This is about saving lives. This is about improving outcomes and quality of care and that you need to be, you know, honest with the complexity of the person, the time that you're spending with. And there is a mathematical formula in coding for E&M or evaluation and management services that 
doing this type of assessment, doing this type of history and analysis and teaching and plans of care and complexity equals this level of service. And we need to not worry about what is being charged. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and who's re who's going to reimburse and how much copay, because at the end of the day, we need to put our heads down on our pillows and know that we have done the best job that we can do to provide the best care, because we know that that will yield the best outcome. Absolutely. Yeah, I, that's just, that's encouraging. That's encouraging to me that there's a practice out there that's making these kind of decisions, the hard decisions, but they are the decisions that's right for the patient. And I think that's what it boils down to. It's what's right for that patient that day, right? that moment right. for that illness. It and that's exactly right. You know, I mean, the system, I, I mean, I believe is created to be very fair and very strategic on what level of service yields what reimbursement. And, you know, what I love, the fact that we are, you know, not paid like a fee for service provider, right? We're able to go in and be able to provide a holistic care regardless of who's paying for what, when, and where, because this is the right thing to do in order yeah. to keep this person stable or out of the hospital. Right. Do you find, and this is, this might be a difficult question to answer, but I, I, I think you can do it. Um, <laughs> I, you know me, I'm transparent. <laughs> yes, absolutely. That's what I love. Do you find that patients are sicker than they even realize oh. for the most part? 100% of the time, I can tell you two days ago when I was out seeing patients, I think, you know, I had about, I think 10 on my list, four back to back said to me, no one has ever told me this. I did not know, you know, and mm -hmm. now this explains why I feel so bad. I thought it was in my head. My family didn't understand, you know, they thought it was, you know, I was making this up. And when I was able to go over their blood work and go over their test results and go over, you know, side effects of medications and kind of show them findings and how everything is interconnected yeah. and, and validating this, that, you know, I, I think that that even improves their mental well-being because they're like, I'm not crazy. I am super sick. But what I'm finding though, that I am surprised of the amount and, and I understand this is the world we live in right now, but the amount of individuals that are prematurely discharged from hospitals mm. and they don't and and they don't have the coordination of care and they get home. I have a, you know, you know, where I see, um, oh, I had to sleep in my wheelchair all night long because I have no family that was able to come here and help me get mm, into the bed. That's hard. And I've had to, you know, have, you know, incontinence and I've not eaten in 14 hours or whatever because I can't get out of my bed to go get food. And I have nobody, I, I had nobody to call and I couldn't reach the phone. And I'm like, oh my gosh, and the hospital sent you home in this environment. And so I, that's where I'm so thankful for our program because we are able to mitigate that risk. And that's, that is a rehospitalization waiting to happen mm -hmm. and or a death, an unnecessary death where I think, you know, so, you know, we are able to then quickly get on the phone, call a social worker, call all of our other providers and see what we can do to kind of SWAT team, help this person improve yeah. because they are so sick. Wow. Yeah. That's, and, and to know that that's the reality, that's heartbreaking. And I think, uh, you know, what, what's some last words of advice, advice for providers that are out there? They're working hard. They're doing everything they can. You know, what's, what's an encouraging word for them that, to keep going, to keep pushing and keep working on this? 
Well, I will say, since we've kind of discussed the why behind risk adjustment, that I know that people get tired. They have competing priorities. You know, you know, we rush and try to get our documentation done to, you know, to kind of have the minimal justification. I think that if people can understand, like if providers can understand that they have a negative impact on future healthcare programs that are being developed to help these chronic conditions, future you know, health insurance programs offered to our very own patients, you know, that help give them affordable health care and co-pays and deductibles, that the power is in their hands, that it might take a little bit longer to be a little bit more thorough to do your due diligence, but it's absolutely worth it. And mm-hmm. and I always like to use the story of the starfish because it seems like, uh, and I don't know if you know the story, but there was an, and I'm going to probably slaughter it a little bit, but there was an individual that decided to get up and w- walk on the beach, you know, early in the morning before the sun came up and through the mist or through the fog, he saw a, a little boy, you know, reaching down, grabbing things off the um, the shore and toss it into the ocean. So out of curiosity, he wanted to go closer to see what exactly he was doing. And he suddenly realized there were like thousands of starfish that had washed upon the shore. And he said to this young boy, and he's like, when the sun comes up, these starfish are going to perish. Surely you're not going to make a difference. The little boy ignored him, turned around, picked up a starfish and tossed it into the ocean. He said, but I just made a difference in this little guy's life. And so I kind of think that sometimes we think the tasks are so unmanageable, Mm -hmm. so daunting, so overwhelming. But if we can just kind of focus on one starfish at a time, one patient at a time and be, and do the best that we can do that we, we have, you know, the ability to show up and be our best and do our best that I just, I, you know, really hope that people can see the bigger picture that they are making such a huge difference in this healthcare, you know, arena in these people's lives. And, and, and I'm just, I see it every day in South Carolina house calls and I'm so excited to be a part of it. Amber, thank you so much. This is so encouraging. I think the future of healthcare is bright. It's exciting. There's so much that can be done, you know, and we have so much work to do. There's so many lives, you know, that, that can be changed and are being changed through South Carolina House Calls, yourself and, and all these providers. So keep up the good work. We're going to do some more podcasting together. And I'm excited about that to hear some of these other topics. But thank you so much for all you're doing. We really appreciate you. Jamie, thank you so much for the opportunity. I had fun. And as you can tell, I'm quite passionate. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I love it. Those are the people I want to work with, passionate people that that love to serve and love to help and love to make a difference. So uh, thank you for all you're doing. Thank you so much and have a blessed day. You too. Thanks for listening. And if you could leave us a five-star review, we would really appreciate it. Visit our podcast website at ltcuniversitypodcast.com. You can also subscribe to one of our other podcasts in our podcast network, The Disrupted Podcast with Scott Middleton, Experiencing Healthcare with Matt Staub, and The Thriving Practitioner Podcast. Thanks again for listening, and we'll be back next week with a new episode. Have a great week.